0: Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers.
1: That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet.
2: And we acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the traditional unceded lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. We thank them and honor them, acknowledging the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love.
1: So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection.
2: As most of you know, the name of this podcast, Under the Tree, draws inspiration and wisdom from the freedom schools created during the civil rights uprisings and freedom struggles of the 1950s and 60s. Those fugitive spaces were sites where people gathered to name their political moment, to think freely about a world that could be or should be, but is not yet, and to organize an insurgency. The work continues.
1: Our first regular feature is a moment of zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is from one of my favorite poets, Eve Ewing. Affirmation to youth living in prison after Asada Shakur. Speak this to yourself until you know it is true. I believe that I woke up today and my lungs were working, miraculously. My voice can sing and murmur and ask, miraculously. My hands may shake, but they can hold me or another. My blood still carries the gifts of the air from my heart to my brain, miraculously put a finger to my wrist or my temple and I feel it. I am magic. Life and all its good and bad and ugly things. Scary things which I would like to forget. Beautiful things which I would like to remember. The whole messy, lovely, true story of myself pulses within me. I believe that the sun shines if not here, then somewhere. Somewhere it rains and things will grow green and wonderful. Somewhere inside me too, it rains and things will grow green and be wonderful. Sometimes my insides rain from the inside out, and then I know, I am alive, I am alive, I am alive. Our second regular feature is a free write, where you can pause the podcast and write wildly, without edits, on this prompt. I woke up this morning with my mind on freedom, and I thought, I am alive. Okay, we'll be right here when you get back.
3: Email us at under the tree
4: pod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build
3: community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast.
2: It's time for our segment, Reports from the Front Row. We used to call it Pages from One Middle Schooler's Notebook, but Lighty has moved on to high school. So we're going to call it Reports from the Front Row, Pages from One High Schooler's Notebook. You're in the ninth grade now. So, Lighty, uh, welcome back.
1: It's good to be back. It's always good to be here.
2: And um, I thought we'd chat for a little bit about what it means to you to have gone from middle school to high school. I mean, is it much different? I mean... You're not that much older, just a few months, but what's the difference?
1: It's not that different. Um, I think our, our middle school teachers wanted to make us believe that, you know, high school is different. Like, you're getting into the real stuff now, but really it's just more of your life, you know? It doesn't change you that much, and it doesn't change... It's not suddenly harder. It's not suddenly real life. It just feels like more of you.
2: And is it freer than it was in eighth grade? And if so, in what ways?
1: Um, I think that a lot of kids comment on how they like having free periods and having open lunch.
2: What's open lunch?
1: Open lunch just means that you're allowed to leave campus for lunchtime. So you can go to a restaurant with your friends or you can um, eat lunch somewhere else, somewhere off campus.
2: Go sit in the park or something?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: And do you like that, more freedom?
1: I do like it. I think that um, a, lot of, a lot of kids say that they like the new independence, but I think it also makes me feel safer in some way, not only more alone, but also more like they're taking care of me better.
2: Why would that be? I mean, I thought you'd be safer if they were all over you and demanding that you stay on campus and so on.
1: It makes me feel safer because now I feel safer in the neighborhood. I feel like venturing outside of my school is not, like, the dangerous, unknown thing that it used to be. I just go out there every day.
2: I see. So you're more used to the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I see. And is there more homework?
1: There is more homework, but um, it's not, like, astronomically more difficult than it was in eighth grade. It's kind of just the workload's a little heavier, but it's not like you suddenly can't keep up.
2: And so... You're in high school. Maybe it's a good time to ask you this. What do you think education is for? What is What what why do we go to school? What's an education?
1: I mean, I think an education is your life. It means learning things, learning about yourself, learning about the world. And I think that a lot of kids my age now have their eye fully on what comes after, which in our case is college. But viewing high school and middle school as a direct route to college is a terrible idea because you're going to waste this huge portion of your life looking on to the next.
2: Right. You ought to live here now Mm -hmm. and enjoy the present and live fully in the present. But so... What, what is an educated person? What are the qualities of an educated person?
1: Somebody who's aware of their surroundings and themselves okay. and who understands, you know, the world, and who understands what they're good at and what they love and what they're passionate about and, like, what they want to do with their life, what they want to do for the rest of however long they exist.
2: And, and does your school do a good job of educating, do you think?
1: I think so, yeah. I've been kind of impressed with them for the past couple of weeks. I've been taking um, some classes that they have really killed in a way that I didn't really think that they would.
2: In what classes, for example?
1: Well, my history teacher um, is a really cool guy, and he told us on the first day that he'll never, ever give us a test where we have to just regurgitate, like, raw information. Mm. Instead, the tests that he gives us are going to be our own interpretations and thinking about what he teaches us, because he said that that's what history is. He said to us, history isn't facts. History is the exchange between primary and secondary sources and how you perceive them.
2: Wow. That's a a heavy sentence.
1: It it is a heavy sentence, but, I mean, I fell in love with him immediately because that's just so... I don't know. Thoughtful means he like actually cares about us.
0: Nice.
2: And and what what are you reading for English?
1: For English right now, we're reading a Salman Rushdie novel called Harun and the Sea of Stories.
2: And tell tell me one word about it. Oof. Well, not one word. Just tell me a bit about it.
1: Oof. Um,
2: <laughs> Oof. Have you gotten into it?
1: I uh, it's it's a lot. I don't like the mood of it at all. I feel like it's pretty depressing and like dry. And, um, but I do think it's interesting to learn about how uh, it was written for Rushdie's son as kind of an encoded message while he was in hiding.
2: While Rushdie was in hiding?
1: Yeah, he wrote it for his son Zafar.
2: And, And can you tell people why Rushdie was in hiding?
1: He was in hiding because he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses, in which he ruthlessly criticized um, the sacred text in Islam. You know, he got in a lot of trouble for that, and they put out a fatwa, so whoever, essentially whoever saw him, kill him.
2: And what happened to Rushdie in the last month?
1: He was in Chautauqua giving a reading. And
2: you've been there.
1: I have been there. I went there almost every summer when I was little for um, a summer camp that I really liked. He was uh, stabbed a few times, and he might, I think he lost an eye, or he might lose an eye, or he will. I'm not sure, but. i knew that as soon as it happened because my parents are big in the literary world and they immediately got the notification and told me and my sister but um we also learned about it in terms of the book that we're reading
2: and it was pretty upsetting
1: it was pretty upsetting yeah i mean a lot of people were well, a lot of students in my class were upset well we like like harshly unhappy about it
2: yeah it's horrifying Well, one last thing I wanted to just touch on is that um, I spent last weekend at a conference called Socialism 2022. And I wondered if you had studied socialism at all in high school yet or junior high, whether you know what socialism is, um, what your thoughts are on that.
1: We actually don't they don't do a very good job of covering that kind of thing. Actually, some uh, funny thing is in in. Um,
4: Speaking of socialism, 2022. Here are a few voices from the hallways, collected by Roxana and Bill.
2: Okay, we're here at Socialism 2022, which I like to call Pinkapalooza, and. Uh, Shockingly, there are over 1,500 people here. It's a big turnout. So I just found a couple people walking by. Introduce yourself. Say what you're up to. Uh, my name's Adam. I'm a PhD student in just north of New York City.
5: I'm Rachel, and I do prison abolitionist organizing, and I'm also from New York.
2: And uh, what brought you to the Socialism Conference?
5: Well, lots of things. He brought you. Well, Adam partly but you know really it's Ruthie (laughs) I can't wait to see Ruthie in person and then just to be connected to all these people that care about socialism and abolition and a world much different than the one we live in right now
2: yeah I I know some of the people on panels I know some of the people
5: here and I just really wanted to spend time with people I consider to be my community uh, which I don't always get a lot of time with
2: You know, I feel that way, too. I feel like we're building community as we speak, and it's kind of wonderful to meet new people, get to know new perspectives, and so on. Uh, Let me ask you just one other quick thing. Um, How would you describe this political moment? I know it makes you sigh, right? Yeah,
5: like deep breath. Um, I guess am I most hopeful? Like, There's a lot of opportunities to do something different because things are... Hard and bad. Um, And yeah, there's I think there's a lot of us who want it to be different. And I think that there's there's hope in that. There's power in that. There's organizing potential. um, But it's but it's tough out there.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I guess I think about I think it was Bob Moses who said something about, you know, to change things, you gotta bring it to
5: white heat. You gotta get energy going. King talked about you know, uh, creating disobedience or, you know, cr- creating crisis. And then that's when you can really change things. I think I think we're in a moment of all kinds of crisis. So I think it's a, it's a moment when we can really change
2: things for the better. Yeah, I feel the same. I feel like we're, the overlapping crises are so profound that you can kind of despair. One of the things that I always hold on to is out of crisis, horrible things can happen, but great things can happen. And I, I know for me, this is kind of weird because I am kind of on the far left, but I've always felt that my opinions on the most important issues of our day are mainstream. Yeah. I think I'm in the majority. I don't feel like I'm a little barricaded minority. So I feel like it's time to get busy and organize.
5: Yeah. I agree. Let's, let's organize, Bill. Yeah, let's do it.
2: <laughs> Good to talk to you all. Talk to you soon. <laughs> and I just ran into two comrades in the hall. Tell me who you are and why you're
0: here. Uh, my name is Kendrick Washington. Um, I'm here because I've really been operating in liberal spaces for far too long, and I've started to recognize that um, the type of change they want isn't the change I'm looking for. I'm looking to change everything, they're looking to change some things, and so I'm looking for a little inspiration and motivation here this weekend.
6: Hi, my name is Eileen Kim, and I'm here um, basically because I've been a student of abolition for a number of years now, starting with Mary McComb. I'm from Fullerton, California, which is an unlikely place for someone to be a student of abolition. Um, but I heard that Ruth Wilson Gilmore was going to, to be here and I had to see her and witness the legend well, for myself,
2: so. So I'm just uh, catching people in the hallways and asking them two quick questions. I have this podcast called The Seminar on Freedom. And so what does freedom mean to you? It's a small question.
6: Right. <laughs> just a small question. Uh, I think freedom means to me, in sort of plain, simple terms, like being left the fuck alone, right? So I think this sort of intrusion on being able to just be who we are in our entirety um, is what inhibits us from being truly free, and that's what we're resisting.
2: What does freedom mean to you, Kendrick?
0: Man, I wish I was where Eileen was. But really, for me, freedom just means like literal freedom, actually able to shed the shackles. And while they're not necessarily physical, the mental shackles still exist in a country like this where we're being oppressed under a capitalist system, under a racist system, under a sexist system. So really, freedom is just getting away from the shackles and sort of, as Eileen noted, really being able to sort of be who the fuck I am and and, and be left alone.
2: in your In your totality. Of course, I always remind people that freedom was the slogan, of course, of the Civil War, on one side, it was freedom to end slavery, abolition. On the other side, it was freedom to own people. And so we've got to be, you know, thoughtful about what, what are we fighting for? And I think it's a collective vision.
6: Yeah, 100%. I think language is key. It's always about sort of being as clear as possible about what we want, what we intend
0: well, we still haven't even achieved those goals, right? We still aren't free from slavery yet. And so we're still fighting the same struggle here several hundred years later. Um, And it's one that, it's a struggle we need to finish so that we can then move on to the next.
2: Yeah, I I often think if if slavery is murder and torture, what is wage slavery?
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly right. Um, there is still so much murder and torture. Um, the, the the slave catchers are still out there beating us down in the streets, um, and so until that ends, we can't really say the Civil War has ended.
2: It's really a pleasure meeting you.
6: Thank you for having us. Thank
2: you for being here. It's great to meet you both. Thank you, Bill. Take care. What's up? How you doing? Hey, Bill, I'm doing great now. that I'm here with you. And what's your name? And, and what do you do in the world? My name is Damon Williams. I'm a co-creator of Ergo, a co-founder of the Let Us Breathe Collective. And, you know, I do a couple other things. Yeah, and also my mentor in podcasting, <laughs> don't forget. Um, why Why Socialism 2022? What are you, what are you hoping to do? Um, I'm hoping to see my people. I feel like I'm really excited to be here. I didn't think I was going to be able to make it. And my schedule cleared up to get here a couple of hours, which feels like a gift because I felt like I was missing out. On an epic gathering of folks committed to liberation, transformation, um, and, you know, radically creating a new world. And so a lot of my mentors and people I admire are here. A lot of my peers that I know and love and have not yet met are here. So, you know, I just want to kick it with folks, rub some elbows, convene, meet some new faces and get loved on by some old ones. Beautiful, man. I'm so (laughs) glad you're here.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm Jesse Sharkey. Um, uh, I'm here because um, I consider myself a socialist, and we just came out of a session together. Do you feel that
2: you were nourished and challenged in the session we just came out of?
3: Yeah, we just sort of Ashley Henderson from the Highlander Center. Uh, that was cool. I, I, you know, the the Highlander Center is uh, it's one of these organizations. It, it, it's it, you know. It's, Really important history, you know. It's the school that trained union organizers uh, in the '30s that um, uh, it trained um, civil rights organizers in the '50s. You know, going into the civil rights movement, um, Miles Horton, who's one of my uh, you know favorite education writers, came out of the Highlander Center, and I, I just uh, and, 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 and you know I haven't. It was the first chance I've heard to hear Ashley and hear you know here's some of the new leadership there. Um, you know talk about you know their, their theories about organizing and i was just it, it was um i was a lot i so i'm gonna it'll be a while to, uh, after yeah. some processing there but um but you know it was funny it was um uh, it, it had my neurons firing it was great
2: yeah i felt the same i felt like she's inspiring and she's also provokes thought every time i talk to ash i'm thinking again you know let know. me ask you one last thing um uh, I, I do this podcast on freedom, and it's a big concept. It's a layered concept. When I say to you the concept freedom, what does it make you think? Uh,
3: uh, freedom, I, I, you know, I, I think about freedom. Is a, a, to, to me? It's a, it's at the um, heart of how our society should be. I, you know, I, I I don't think of it just as sort of an individual freedom for me to do what I want. I think of freedom as being about. Having society where um, uh, our communities nurture and support, you know support us I, I think about um, where you know people have um, you know and food and shelter and love and, and community and support uh, and that allows us to live our lives in a way that is um, is liberated it allows us to live a um, li- live up our human potential and, and for us to unlock human potential and could be down to the heart of it
2: yeah, I agree with all that, and I think it's a constant struggle. We're not there, it's a verb.
3: It's something we have yeah. to work towards. Freedom is a busy, constant struggle, yeah. I feel like I've read that
2: somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, Jesse, good to talk you. to you. Okay, it's time for our segment called Authors, Activists, Academics, and Artists After Hours. I'm going to leave you for a bit to talk with Robin D.G. Kelly, an activist and engaged scholar, a brilliant thinker who describes himself as a Marxist surrealist feminist, who is not just anti something, but pro emancipation. Okay. I'll see you later. I kind of love that. So I'll be right back. So I'm here at Socialism 2022, Robin, welcome. Thank you. So great to be with you. So great to have you here. And Robin, is, most of you know, is a legendary historian um, with a wide reach. And we happen to be talking on the 20th anniversary of his book, Freedom Dreams. So I, may, I thought maybe we'd start there because that's the book that really, I mean, I knew your work before, but Freedom Dreams is the one that really captured right. me. Right. So say a word about what it's like 20 years later to look back on, on the book that really um, defined a lot of your work.
4: Yeah, you know, um, I didn't plan to come out with the 20th anniversary edition, but a couple things happened. One, you have the rebellions of 2020, uh, which, you know, when you read Freedom of Dreams, you realize it, it would not have caught you off guard. Uh, in fact, the, the rehearsal for that moment, um, I would argue, was the protests after the Uh, the verdict around the Amadou Diallo killing, when you saw a much smaller-scale version of multiracial communities coming out, uh, angered about um, the killing of an unarmed black man, uh, as you have a transition from the end of the Clinton era, which a lot of us spent a lot of time fighting, (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the the kind of um, weird nostalgia about the Clinton years being so great the, the same regime that brought us you know the end of welfare as we know it that brought us a crime bill that brought us immigration reform um, that uh, made life actually pretty precarious for a lot of people uh, and that's that's the context and then of course I start writing this book and uh, You know, just on the eve of, during, and after the invasion of Afghanistan in 9-11. So that was the context for it. Uh, Fast forward 20 years later, um, we have just come out of, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We are coming out of, you know, essentially two decades of organized against police violence again. We're in Chicago right now, where organizing against police violence was at the center. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, was this, this, this is like ground zero around police torture and the struggles, not just the more recent struggles in terms of the killing of Vakia Boyd and Laquan McDonald and others, but a long history of this kind of violence. And, you know, here we, we are we, after eight years of Obama. Um, with the expectation that things would be different, of course they're not, then we have four years of, of Trump. So thinking back to the bookends of, again, a, you know, fighting against police violence, Redux, plus uh, the alleged end of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, the, 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 it's the alleged end of the war on terror, uh, which we know is not the end, because we continue to see violence in Palestine. We continue to see um, the same uh, U.S. response to the Saudi regime, which is, you know, we'll scratch you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. Uh, and it appears that nothing's changed, but it appears that everything's changed, mm. you know. Um, and as I was sort of rewriting or rethinking this book again. I start with, with spring 2020, I finish the introduction epilogue uh, after the coup, the attempted coup on the right. Capitol, right. you know? <laughs> and, and so in, in many ways, that's the context for the book, and I'm hoping that the revitalization of it in many ways will remind us of why we do what we do, mm. which isn't simply to fight to win reforms piecemeal but to really kind of re-envision uh, a, a different kind of future yeah. and to try to put that into practice.
2: You know, as you spoke about the 20th anniversary of your book, you did something that you do in all your work, which is you made it international as well as national. You, you went immediately to the international context. Why is that important?
4: <sighs> I can't think of any other <laughs> <laughs> Any other way to think only well you know part part of it I think has to do with with my own training as a historian. I mean, I started out as an Africanist, mm. you know i wasn't doing u s history um and so I see uh so much of 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 u s history through this lens of empire um and in fact, living an empire made me an africanist uh, living an empire. Uh, you know meant that the book that changed my life before I'd read Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism was Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And that was how it became an Africanist. So that's that's a personal context, but there's a political one as well. Um, and that is, you know, we think about what were the political struggles we were engaged in. I mean you know, I I know a lot of people and And it seems like we're always involved in international struggles because whether we like it or not, they're like in our face. Mm -hmm. They've come home. I mean, imagine you can't live through the early 1980s as a young person and not be involved with. Try and stop the invasion of Grenada without being involved in the anti party movement, uh, without recognizing um, that what we thought was, what a new generation thought was new, that is, the idea of sanctuary cities. The sanctuary cities, that was the, those are the politics of the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, uh, where you have uh, Central American migrants fleeing death squads and we're trying to organize around their protection in the 1980s. Um, and so it's impossible to escape it you there's no hole big enough to protect you from the rest of the world. Why? Because the United States is disrupting the rest of the world that's what this is what this country does um, and the irony, of course, is that we expect much of the globe to be internationalists because we think of them as international but you but but you can't live in the United States without thinking internationally if you're concerned about people, because, it, you know, it's like Dr. King said. Um, there's really no nation that's done more damage around the world. The greatest purveyor of violence in the world is the United States. You know. Well, you you know I I agree with you
2: and I see it that way. But when you say it's impossible to see the world, I agree with you. It's impossible to see the. To see the United States without the world context if you're devoted to human freedom. Mm-hmm. But so many on the left, and certainly on the liberal left, right. actually make that distinction very strongly. And I think you're advising us to think more broadly and to think as internationalists.
4: Right, exactly. No, you're right about that. And this has been, a, a I think, a pet peeve of all of us. You know, I, I so appreciate your show because you've always paid attention to the world and people you bring on your show do. Um, but it is true that, you know, the irony is that the, the left, the, the U.S. left of the last, say, 10, 15 years... No, let me go back. Let me just say this. Let me just be honest. The U.S. left post 9-11... Because nine eleven was a turning point. Yes, um, I, I lost a lot of friendships around nine eleven. Uh, when uh, you know, mostly the kind of white labor leftists who were friends, uh, you know, decided, okay, well, this is attack on the United States, and they became nationalists exactly in the worst way. In the worst way. <laughs> oh, you remember that?
2: <laughs> I remember it. I mean, I remember. Our mutual friend, Rashid Khalidi, saying to Bernadine and me, um, when people were falling away from us after 9-11, saying they weren't your friends anyway. You you know, you you have to understand that you were, you know, in in a sandbox that you didn't really belong in anyway.
4: Yes. And, you know, it's so funny. I didn't even think we were going to talk about this, but I remember your book came out. Right. You know? That's right. And... There was this whole debate, first of all, a useless debate about whether we should release this book. Um, you know, would it be incendiary? And I'm like, really? Are yeah. we having this conversation? Well, we're having you it even more
2: intensely today, aren't yeah, we, about exactly. what you can read? But you're absolutely right. The book came out on 9 11, a few days. And the nice thing is, the attacks came. Rashid told us, don't worry about who you're losing. Got a phone call. After about a week of threats and nonsense from Edward Said, saying you're doing something right, right, and don't uh, don't think twice, you know. Um, exactly, it's good exactly. to know who, who who you're with, who who you're in solidarity with. You
4: know? Yeah, and it's also good to know um, how fragile, you know, for some for some leftists, how fragile internationalism is. Also, how fragile their understanding of state and state violences in American imperialism. Because if you really do grasp the nature and character and history of American imperialism, there's no possible way uh, you can stand behind it under any circumstances. Right. You know, after 9-11, I remember I wrote a piece for the nation, and I, I think I titled it Murderous Humanitarianism, which was a, the, um, the title of a uh, surrealist... Um, statement that was made in 1932, I think it was. And I wrote this little piece. And I got a lot of flack for it, saying, you know, if anything, you know, we, we need to turn, I'm quoting, or at least paraphrasing, we need to turn this imperialist war, that is the U.S. war on, Afghan, on Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, into a civil war. Mm. You know, that's, that was the argument of murderous humanitarianism. I mean, we need to turn this into a struggle for power among those people who actually believe in freedom to stop the war. There's no, there's nothing good about war. I, I wasn't interested in that debate in post 9-11 about this is a good war versus a bad war. As if World War II, which, yes, was against fascism, was solely a good war. The war that led to the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that's the good war. The war that, that resulted in the deaths of, of 27 million citizens of the Soviet Union, um, let alone all the other people who died, and the war that in the end was about the consolidation of empire. You know, So in other words, you fight fascism in one place, and you're kind of victorious, that's fine. But then, what's the result? You continue the fascism that started it all in Africa, in Asia, in the colonies. No, that, really?
2: It, yeah, it's mind-blowing. And it, and it, what you're bringing to my mind is we found a work a few years ago by uh, Carolyn Elkin's uh, Imperial Reckoning. Mm-hmm. And it's about Kenya and, you know, the kind of what you take away from it is the British Empire had a great public relations campaign because they were absolute fascists in Kenya. That's right. And so they got good PR, but they are a nasty, nasty empire, just like every empire.
4: Yes, that's true. That's true. As Du Bois had this really great line, um, it might have been in the world in Africa or it might have been someplace else where he says, you know, um, you know, again, to paraphrase, he's like, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't crowd. Cry crocodile tears over, over Britain um, when there's no atrocity that the Nazis uh, have enacted that the British haven't on colonized people. Absolutely, you know. And we and if we really believe in human freedom, if we really believe in it, then we've got to fight it wherever. Right, fight for it wherever it is. That is everywhere. Um, and when we do that, we're going to confront uh, empire. You know, and it, this is a hard time to do that right now because, like you're saying, we have this kind of you know new knee jerk kind of patriotism. We've got even something that's supposed to be as progressive as a sixteen nineteen project mm-hmm. as a kind of uh, way to disrupt um, the the kind of settler story of um, American democracy. And I understand. What's behind it, but there's a way in which even the 1619 project is saying we need a new kind of patriotism that incorporates all of us. Mm. We don't need patriotism. Mm. We need a new we need a new humanity. We need we need a new situation where um, patriotism is not used to continually center the United States. Mm. Um, This is a crumbling empire we're faced with and we're living in, and yet there's still this kind of propping up. Uh, U.S. foreign policy is all about the United States being number one. Uh, we, we, you know, the, the the mere fact that we allow—I and I say we, meaning the vast majority of Americans—would support legislation that would prop up corporations and give them huge subsidies, you know, like you know, computer chips, for example, in order to compete with China, mm. you know, at the expense of health care, at the expense of joblessness, poverty, precarity, um, so that we can compete with China. I mean, that's just the old Cold War stuff.
2: It is. You know, in my little world of schools and public school reform, you know, it always amazes me that we're going to motivate third graders by saying we're in a war with China and we have to beat China. What third grader? I mean, what? madness is that and how does it create a consciousness and a culture right. of patriotism and
4: lesser and, and greater human beings absolutely and how is that so different from saying that those migrants are going to take your jobs exactly you know Very it's the same, similar. same thing
2: you know, you know so you raise a couple things I'd like to get to one is you know should the left make the quest for freedom central to our work and, and how do we do that
4: I think so. I think it also depends on how we define freedom. You know, freedom is one of those words that um, has always been contested. You know, in in the United States, uh, freedom is associated with liberalism. Liberalism is associated with, we're talking about 19th century liberalism, Mm -hmm. with free trade, with free labor, not labor rights and justice free labor meaning that um, labor that may not necessarily be in chained as long especially if it's white labor uh, not in but nevertheless free labor as a way to pay the lowest wages possible to extract the most surplus um, that's what free, freedom is free enterprise you mm-hmm. know and that's how people think of freedom um, and and that's why I got you know when freedom dreams came out like conservatives saying, "Well, this looks like a good book. Yeah. Oh, then they, then the they
2: read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, what you say goes back in our whole history. I mean, what was the Civil War fought over? It was fought over freedom. Yes. On one side, the freedom to free the enslaved workers. On the other side, the freedom to own people. Yes. And they both used the same rhetoric. I mean, they
4: both were saying freedom, freedom now. Exactly. And who got the reparations? Exactly. The slave owners. Uh, you know?
2: uh, have you read uh, Barracoon... Um, Yes. It blows my mind. But yes. the, the piece in it that I absolutely loved was when Cujo Lewis organizes some of his fellow workers uh, to go to the former master and say, you owe us for all this labor. And the response from the master is, wait a minute, you owe me. You know, I, I used to own you. And now you've been taken from me. <laughs> right. It was, it was astonishing. And you have a letter from a... Formerly enslaved
4: worker in, in right, Freedom Jordan, Dreams. Yes, I, I forget the story. Maybe you yeah, tell. yeah. No, definitely. So I have a chapter on reparations in the, in the in Freedom Dreams, uh, which opens up with this letter. It was um, partly drafted by a group of, of abolitionists with this former formerly enslaved person, who basically writes his master and says, "You know how you doing? Um, you know, by the way." I'm so glad you didn't, you know, that when you, you're not a good shot and you didn't sh- kill me or as I was running away, <laughs> Right. but then says, okay, um, we have to settle score. I, I want to come back down. I'll visit you, but this is what you owe me and just calculated the, the amount. And, you know, in, in a free market society, um, though, John Locke wouldn't agree with this. Um, what Jordan says in his letter makes perfect sense because he actually had this thing called his labor power, right. which, in a capitalist system is is a commodity for sale yeah. and and it was stolen from him. And yet, as you said exactly, um, if you look at the end of of slavery within the Western world, in almost every case, it's the master, the owner, that was compensated. So, in the case of the United States, all the, all the border uh, states the states that were loyal to, um, to the, the the union and washington d c those, those masters got payment exactly um, in the British Empire. what they, you know part of the story is that, oh yeah, the British they abolished slavery in That had a period of apprenticeship. And but during that apprenticeship, they had to pay wages. Where did they get the wages from? Well, because they were compensated by the British government. Right. right. You know, not the enslaved people. Those masters got payment. Exactly. Um, in the British Empire, what they you know part of the story is that oh yeah, the British they abolished slavery 1833. That period of apprenticeship. And But during that apprenticeship, they had to pay wages. Where did they get the wages from? Well, because they were compensated by the British government, right, right. you know, not the enslaved people. So they had to work for those wages, which are paltry as it is. And part of what the vision of freedom, and, and so to go back to your question, like what kind of freedom are we talking about? The vision of freedom in Reconstruction was not based on, this, on simply capitalist principles. It was based on on autonomy and self-determination. I'm saying, look, freedom for us means a the right to vote and to run for office, in that when we're in office, we're gonna basically draft new constitutions, state constitutions that lay out certain rules, some of those rules about free public education are for everybody. Some of those rules are, you know, um, land reform, redistribution. In fact, some of that vision of freedom is to make sure that the former confederates who waged this very expensive war for which no one who knows who's going to pay the debt should pay that debt by giving up their land Mm. to the people who worked it. That is freedom. That's a definition of freedom that is the one that's foundational to this vision of abolition as we know it because it's one that's not based on the sanctity of private property. And if you think about what abolition abolitionists in the 19th century, the antebellum period, were struggling with, not black abolitionists, but a lot of the mainstream liberal abolitionists were like, well, we can't just abolish slavery because of the Fifth Amendment. Right. <laughs> it's right. like, you can't, you can't violate that. So how are we going to do it? How are we going to come up with it? Oh, I know, if you have a war, we can use confiscation. Like, why do you have to do that? Right. You know, J- John Brown, who was one of the greatest... Greatest living thinkers and doers was like this is a violation of God's wo- God's will, right? And the real thief are the slaveholders and the United States for sanctioning it, right? So you know we need not just reparations; we need to re- overturn the whole system, right. right? And still true. I mean,
2: you you use a couple of phrases: uh, racial capitalism, um, abolition, democracy. Maybe you could define that a little bit or just speak into it. Um, What what is racial capitalism to people who are listening?
4: Yeah, well, to put it in the simplest terms, racial capitalism is capitalism. That is to say that capitalism emerged in the Western world and expanded throughout the rest of the globe um, as a system in a civilization that already had racialism. That is to say that um, even before Africans entered the scene, just within Europe itself, there's a hierarchy of value that if you're Irish, if you're Roma, if you're, you know, if you're a Slav, I mean, we know what Slav means, <laughs> you know, Slav means slave, that you're value less than others. And that hierarchy allowed for, when capitalism emerges, to extract greater wealth or pay people fewer wages or less wages uh, to take people's land because they're devalued. Now, you take that idea and you expand it to the rest of the globe, all it means is that racial capitalism, the product of colonial capitalism, is a system that operates just like capitalism in the purest sense, but is always structured by race and by gender. And that's basically it. That's why, um, you know, you can explain things like, property values in neighborhoods with black and brown people are just simply worth less even if they pay more Mm -hmm. for food or pay more for rent. Mm -hmm. Um, Race allows that to happen. Um, And it's not incidental. It's not an incidental feature of capitalism. It is foundational and endemic. And so so you can't produce, you can't create a better capitalism. It will always be racial. And by the way, what we're talking about is not just the United States. We're talking about racial capitalism as a global phenomenon. You know, you could see you could see it operate in India, in Brazil. You know, so should borders be abolished? Yes. <laughs> okay, that was short answer.
2: <laughs> That's good. You were just on a panel with um, with uh, Harsha, Harsha. W- yeah. Walia, and uh, you were talking about abolishing borders, and and I'm hearing echoes of it throughout our conversation because you're talking about the kind of hierarchical nature of valuing humanity and you're saying no if we want to value humanity we must abolish borders right. we must create the common the commons i guess exactly is one way to exactly
4: say it. i mean what what harsha walia says in her amazing book border and rule and ruthie gilmore says so in her, her work as well and others is that the the some of the, t- the two main uh problems of reduced to one problem um from much of the world is uh, mobility, forced mobility, and immobility—the mm-hmm. ability to to not to, not having the right to move and leave um, without having to be um, subjected to uh, administrative violence—versus you know not being able to move at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we think about sort of the long history. Of the world, it's a very long history. Much of what we end up talking about is only the last two or three hundred years. But um, what we know of as borders, in every single case, without exception, they are imperial borders. All borders are imperial borders. Even the ones between nations that might have, like, you know like that's around China, for example. Um, There's a way in which even China as an empire creates its own imperial borders. And some of those borders are based on the capacity of the state to subject peoples uh, to, you know, to violence, to taxation, to exploitation. Um, And so the fact that imperial borders in world history are really short-lived, the state as we know it, the nation state short-lived, Um, And it hasn't really done much, you know, to benefit humanity. There's no reason for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But here's the problem, is that with borders come uh, border thinking. Mm -hmm. There's an ideology of borders. There's these natural divides. Uh, And trying to eliminate border thinking is a real challenge. Um, because, like we were saying before, if you have already decided, if you live in a culture in which the world is, is structured into hierarchies, not just difference. Because right. we talk about difference. A lot. Dif- difference is meaningless unless it's hierarchy. Because right. you know, we, difference is great. But, but difference here, in, in this case, could be lethal. Mm. But once you do that, then the borders function as a way to uh, uh, strengthen the kind of nationalists or racial ideology of the Heron right, right, uh, as a way to create enemies, to exclude, mm. um, and as a way to control labor, which is fundamentally what it's about. The one thing, though, and we didn't talk about this in the panel, but we could talk about this right now, is that um, borders... That you know the neoliberal order is doesn't see borders when it comes to capital. In fact, the whole organization of neoliberalism right. is to say what we want are borders for people, but no borders at all for capital. Exactly. And none. Labor
2: labor has the borders, exactly. and, and capital has the free flow.
4: And not only that, but but that neoliberal order is saying that no state. Should have sovereignty right. over capital exactly none could you imagine what it means to say that, that you can 't impose minimum wages you can 't impose um, that you shouldn 't have the right to impose environmental rules right. and regulations right. that you shouldn 't have the right to subsidize right i mean that's <laughs> that 's a neoliberal dream. Capital could go anywhere it wants without papers right but people no yeah
2: you know i 'm glad you raised the long history because Humanity's been around a long long time and it's really only in the last couple hundred years that states have advanced Human freedom at all and only when there's fire from below Mm -hmm. So I think people have to remember that the state is not your friend when it comes to freedom unless There's fire from below and then we see small advances in the in the nature of human freedom
4: Exactly no, I totally agree with that and and when that fire from below crosses borders Solidarity—it's—it's it's a real fire. It's, it's a, a real, real fire. Power.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I always feel like a, as, as a part-time wobbly, I often think, yeah, we need a, a one big union, one general strike,
4: internationally. Right. You know, it's,
2: it's not right. right here, not in one industry.
4: Right. Well, the wobblies have the best slogans. I mean, you know, if you think about it. I mean, the best slogans: one big union, uh, entry to one is the entry to all. Exactly. Which is that's that's way beyond. Um, compassion or empathy <laughs> That's exactly you say a solidarity
2: you know I've, I've I've been a long time admirer of your work and your activity but I, I would I'm looking here at a book on the table that you wrote a classic about thelonious monk and um, and then I'm looking at you you know in your work on Marx and then on social movements I'd like you to talk a bit about surrealism and Marxism feminism I mean you claim all these as parts of who you are and what your work is about how do you how do you come to the surreal in this
4: oh boy it seems like an easy question but it actually is not that easy I Um, I didn't (laughs) intend it to be easy so (laughs) you know um I, I Marxism has a lot to do with the with my path to surrealism um and in fact the way freedom dreams is structured it's, it's each chapter is each chapter's autobiographical in a sense right. it doesn't come across that way but um i kind of went through um all these movements i mean i was i came up in, in high school and college as a, a black nationalist with you know marxist proclivities thanks to my sister um, and what the story of freedom dreams lays out is not that it's a kind of evolution from one to the other. I carried each one of those categories i care I still carry a piece of me uh, that uh, believes in the land question mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and I, w- I was listening to you actually one of your shows before um talking about the impact that say the the Black Nation thesis, the Communist right. Party, and Republic of New Africa had. I mean, I grew up with that. I mean, right. I grew up thinking, okay, there's something else, something that's possible in this idea of self-determination. So that, so what I'm saying is that that the question of socialism never ever left any of those categories. By the time we get to surrealism, surrealism is is also my reckoning with Marxism, because you know the most important teacher I've had besides my mother was the late Cedric Robinson who wrote Black Marxism and when you read the book very carefully it is a critique a loving critique of Marxism uh, which says wait a second you know all the things that we think uh, we knew about you know socialism for example or what we knew about consciousness um, Marx tried but of course Marx and Engels failed in some places and he he gives this critique that made me think about the places where Marxism in many ways failed. It failed to come to terms with a politics of love. It failed mm-hmm. to come to terms with um, the the psyche and the unconscious um, and the question of desire. Mm-hmm. You know, because, and I'm not saying that Marx, if Marx were around sitting with us, he'd probably agree. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd mm-hmm. probably be disagreeable about some things and agree with this. But I'm not saying that it's about right or wrong, but it is about recognizing that as human beings in this quest for human freedom, that freedom is not reducible to our ability to reproduce ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's just simply not. Mm -hmm. Freedom is something that's way deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it has intangibles. Um, It is about um, being able to to be a free thinker being able to recognize other forms of knowledge that only can be manifest through feeling and through poetry, and not necessarily through um, the rational. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are all products around the globe of the the rational side of the Western Enlightenment, you know, imposed on us. But there's other sides of the Enlightenment that got lost, the romantic side that got crushed in some ways, and there's other modes of thought and this is where surrealism comes in that are outside of the west itself Mm -hmm. you know that i mean that my family grew up with you know come from jamaica and also from the u.s south certain kinds of practices of being able to commune with ancestors Mm -hmm. things like that which to me are real Mm -hmm. that's like real i mean i have this very funny story about the loneliest monk which is a true story and this is um where i was working on this book and I was trying to get people to talk to me and I was frustrated and then I got hit by a car. Mm. Um, in fact, I got hit by a car on November 9th, 2001. It was right after 9-11. I was in Newark. It's a whole long story, but I'm like in the hospital, broken leg, surgery, concussion, and um, this funny parts of the story which I won't go into, but I'll just say this much. Uh, someone had said to me, um, uh, a, a great Scholar, photographer, C. Daniel Dawson, who knows a lot about um, uh, Santeria. And he says, you know, did you ever ask monk permission to write the book? Mm. And I said, well, what do you mean? like, did you actually ask Thelonious monk permission? Because, you know, you have to be able to ask him. He said, because the reason that you got hit was that was Ogun speaking to you. Mm. You know, that's metal. That's saying you need to wake up. Mm. And So... He came over with some other friends. We created an altar. I put a picture of Monk's daughter, who died very young, of cancer. I put a picture of Thelonious Monk. I had a clear glass of water I could change every day. I had other original music. And for two weeks, I would ask permission to write this book. And sure enough, two weeks later, all these people started calling me and saying, Oh, yes, of course I'll talk to you. Nice. Nelly, Monk, his his widow's like, Yes, of course I'll talk to you. And things change. And... You know, when that happens, I'm sorry, I've read every volume of collective works of Marx and Engels, mm. all, 40 volumes, letters, manuscripts, and none of that's in there. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So that, that's, what, that's where surrealism is important because that's my own personal story, but the larger question is it, it raises the issue about what's the role of art in creativity, in producing the visions of freedom that can move us beyond uh, the utilitarian to the transcendent.
2: Yeah, I noticed you've written with Franklin Rosemont, a a Chicagoan. Yes. Uh, You bring to mind uh, Gwendolyn Brooks in her great poem about the Picasso. She says, does man love art? And her answer, man visits art but cringes because (laughs) art urges voyages. And in some ways, I love your thing about not leaving marks behind but bringing them with you you know Mm -hmm. i i still carry around my students for democratic society membership card because i never left i'm still in the weather underground you know i don't Mm want to i I don't want to leave those things behind i want to learn from them they can be good teachers but uh but there's always more And, and and the idea that you get it figured out that's where dogma comes in in the in the worst way so we should always be figuring it out and who's teaching you now one of the things I, I really, as I say, admire your work so much, but one of the things I admire, and you and I are lucky, we've been professors, we've been around young people, mm-hmm. but we mentioned uh, Harsha Walia, and then you introduced me to Derricka Purnell, mm-hmm. and you said to me, don't talk to me, go talk to Derricka Purnell, so I got her <laughs> book, and uh, she's amazing, but I mean, one of the things that you've made a point of in your life, and you're not yet an elder, you're catching up. Where are you, an elder? I'm an elder. Okay,
4: like I'm a member of ARP. Okay. I, I, I get those discounts. Oh shit! I'm telling you. So,
2: so we're we're advanced elders. We're almost uh, we're almost over. But but no, I, I think there's something very important about the fact that you continue to not only be in dialogue with and in touch with, but kind of helping folks um, find a path into the public, and I, I, that's, that's very admirable to me.
4: Yeah, well, you know, this—I'll be honest—they helped me find a path. Exactly. I mean, that's why I hang out with all these young people. And Derrica is a, is amazing. Uh, her partner now, Fort, is amazing. I mean, there's a a lot of there's a wonderful generation. Um, but you know what? Let me go back though to something else you, you said um, about being stuck in dogma. You know, because it's not. It's not hard to be stuck. No, you know, it's, it's easy. It's easy, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's the it's fallback, you know, because you have all the answers. But one person that all of us, the three, all of us, and our Bernard Deans here, uh, share is a connection to Gracie Box. Exactly. You know? And I have to say, um, besides Cedric Robinson and my mother, I would put Grace up there as being one of the most important teachers I've ever had. Freedom Dreams, which I write about her in the new introduction, and the impact that she had, both in inspiring the book, but also pushing me even harder after the book came out. Um, And that is that, you know, Grace and Jimmy Boggs—they—they left dogma behind way before I was born.
2: Absolutely, they're
4: like thinking hard. And I don't think that you no. Know, here we're we at the socialism conference. I'm not sure how much we, as as a so-called left, appreciate what it means to leave that behind and to be and to think in original terms. That is hard. It means that you actually have to like think both collectively but without a net. Exactly.
2: You know. You know I, I, I think we had breakfast with Grace Burnley and I on her. 100th birthday and she passed away shortly afterwards but one of the things that always left us breathless with grace was that she was willing to make a concrete analysis of concrete conditions today Mm -hmm. not not something she had figured out 50 years ago and she was riding on but she was willing to say but look this is new this is a different thing and i think for you and i think for me as well i think surrealism and poetry and art allow us to do that they challenge us to not get stuck and I think it's easy to get stuck because it's more comfortable yes very
4: uncomfortable as as uh, Gwyneth Brooks says man visits art but cringes you know right Uh, right exactly and the cringing part is very important too because art does challenge us Uh, it reveals sometimes our deepest fears and contradictions um, even when it's most beautiful um and, you know, Monk had this... The only Walt he ever wrote was called Ugly Beauty. And um, in many ways, that, that song title captures um, the reality that we all face. We, we wish we can have that, you know, that pristine beauty, you know, when we write about how we imagine the future. But, you know, we also see the same, the same conditions that produce the possibility of freedom also produce the possibility of constricting that freedom. That's right. You know, and there's no guarantee. The only, the only thing that we can promise is the struggle. We can't guarantee the outcome. And art, in some ways, reminds us of both the dark outcome but also the bright outcome. Yeah. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Yeah, one of my great teachers was
2: Maxine Green, and she always said, look, the imagination is a motherfucker because the ima- it took a great imagination to think of Auschwitz. Yes, And uh, so she always emphasized the social imagination. What can we imagine together? it would allow us to live freer more liberated lives let me ask you um, one last thing and that is what is your freedom dream today?
4: (laughs) besides retirement (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah you know I I don't have a good answer for that question because in many ways um, the you know part of what part of what I try to do with the book um, is talk about people in motion. And I have to say, if I gave you an answer today, um, next week it might change. Mm, you know? Of course, and it should. Um, right. <laughs> it should. Because <laughs> we're always in motion. And if anything, um, I, I think when we get past the the binary of winning and losing, and move toward what does it mean to be in constant uh, struggle to create the conditions for human freedom. Um, If I have a freedom dream, it is that uh, more of us can be in that struggle together. Mm. and then we see what we come up with. Mm-hmm. When I say more of us, I mean the whole world. I get it. Um, we, we're, we're facing uh, a catastrophe that is unlike any other in human history uh, in terms of what the climate um, and what, what you know, years of capitalist extraction and pollution and violence has done. And so if we're not together... If we're not thinking about human freedom, not for ourselves, but for the other. You know, like my, my daughter talks about, you know, thinking about... The, she, she talks about the love letter, that the, the beauty of the love letter is that... My daughter's Eliza Kelly. The beauty of the love letter is that when you send it, you, there's no expectation of a response. Mm. And we have to be able to send ourselves and our love... In our solidarity with the world with no expectation of reciprocity, of something getting back, but knowing that this is how we save ourselves as a community, because it's like, you know, you put the, you know, you, you put, you may put the mask on yourself. But you gotta help others. Right. And we gotta do that.
2: Yeah, the love letter is not transactional. Neither is the freedom struggle. Exactly. Robin Kelly, I cannot thank you enough for your time, for your wisdom, for your brilliance, for every one of your books and appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. It's great
1: to see you. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human.
2: Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, to my co-conspirators, Light Ilee and Roxana Espos, and to Palace Shaw for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a bold and vivid freedom dream, with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.